Amber Carswell and I had a theory that when the dean sets the preaching schedule, he assigns to one of us the Sundays with Gospels that are particularly hard to interpret. Today might be a case in point. But then I remember that two Sundays ago, the dean had to preach on Jesus' shocking statement about hating one's family in order to be his disciple. Come to think of it, St. Luke has provided us with a whole summer of unsettling, challenging Gospels. We have heard that we cannot follow the Lord unless we give up all our possessions. We have heard that Jesus came not to bring peace but a sword. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we heard of the unorthodox sometimes doing God's will more than the orthodox. We have heard that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and that those who humble themselves will be exalted. None of this is easy, nor is it meant to be. We may think of Luke as the mildest of Gospels, in part because it contains the heart of the classic Christmas story, which we have tamed into something meek and mild. But I now see more than ever that the Gospel of Luke has a real bite to it, as does our Lord's life-giving message in all the Gospels. Uh, today's parable is only found in Luke and it certainly gives us something to wrestle with. Jesus tells this peculiar parable about a manager or steward of a great man's estate who had mismanaged the property entrusted to him. All of a sudden, his employer finds out, rebukes him, and dismisses him. The steward is thus left in the lurch, in danger of being homeless and friendless. Instead of despairing, however... He gathers all his wits about him and comes up with an ingenious plan. By lowering the debts of those who owe his master certain commodities, he makes friends with them so that they will take him into their homes after he is expelled from his job. He is known as the dishonest steward because he secured his future by depriving his employer of profit, perhaps by removing what amounted to interest charges. His master didn't like it, of course, but nevertheless, being a sharp businessman himself, the master appreciated his former steward's ingenuity. Commenting on the parable, Jesus shockingly seems to find something praiseworthy about this steward as well. He is not advocating, of course, ruthless financial practices, nor is he saying that worldly shrewdness will get us into heaven. I think that's very confusing when it says, you know, make friends with dishonest wealth and then you'll have, you know, uh, eternal, uh, an eternal home. Or so. It's not talking, in my interpretation at least, about uh, heaven, uh, eternal homes. That probably should be translated homes that will last. It's, it's uh, about securing personal circumstances in this life that will last even when the money runs out. That's very hard to interpret. But I think the key here is the point that Jesus commends shrewdness, not just for any purpose, but to advance God's purposes. He hopes his followers will exemplify that steward in his shrewdness in order to advance God's purposes. And he hopes that like the shrewd manager, 
we will wake up to the fact that we have a crisis on our hands and then act rapidly using all our resources to get beyond the crisis to a better long-term situation. At the heart of that situation, that better situation in Jesus' view, are homes that will last, not in the material sense, but I would say in the sense of a home with each other and God. That's worth sacrificing everything for. Some leading Jews in Jesus' day were aware, like the steward in the parable, that a crisis was at hand. I think there's some uh, etymological connection between the word crisis and the word cross. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But, you know, it's sort of a, a, a turning point, an intersection that demands everything to go the right way. The Jews, in the some leaders' view, had not been responsible stewards of God's bounty. And their current suffering under the Romans seemed to indicate God's displeasure and the danger of dismissal. At least a few were awake and realized, hey, we've got to do something. And the Pharisees' prescription for that was to enforce the law more strictly. And it may have sounded good in theory, but that alienated many people. Few seemed to be good enough for the Pharisees, and so they ended up sort of pushing people away instead of drawing people into this divinely ordained mission. But Jesus, of course, took a different approach. He, too, recognized that God's people were in crisis, in danger of failing to live into their ancient covenant, and, of, of, uh, and in danger of failing to serve as a light to the world as God intended. But, in contrast to the Pharisees, his prescription was to put aside regulations that didn't ultimately matter, and he concentrated with everything he had on drawing people, as many as possible, into a home that would last, into a faithful community rooted in God. Like the steward in the parable, Jesus was acting urgently and assiduously to get beyond a crisis. But unlike the steward, he was motivated not by selfish worldly interests, but by a love for God and others that was nothing less than divine. He was just as driven as that steward, but had a fundamentally different motivation. Out of love, he cared so much about God's people finding their true home that he gave his whole life to the cause. In sacrificing his life, he exemplified and promoted what our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, recently called, and I'm quoting, a way of love that seeks the good and the well-being of the other before the self's own unenlightened interest. A way of love that is not self-centered, but other-directed. A way of love grounded in compassion and goodness and justice and forgiveness. A way of love that can set us free. In this and every age, the church is called to recognize that we are in a crisis requiring our best, requiring everything we have to give. People are in desperate need of healing, reconciliation, and hope which only God's love can bring. All of us are in desperate need of a loving community 
in which we can make our true and eternal home. The priceless message and the gifts we have to give, like the Eucharist, for example, God gives it through us. They don't seem in many cases to be reaching enough people. Last Sunday, Amber noted in her sermon, the growing numbers in this country who claim no religious affiliation, which means they don't participate in the life-giving community that the church can be. The fields are ripe for harvest, and nothing less than our full involvement in God's cause can do the job. To some extent, we have seen the church, with God's help, serve as a true home for people. I know it has been for me. A true home, a haven for the weary, a family for those without family, a place of loving outreach, a place where people can enter into communion with the God who alone can save us, both individually and corporately. I have seen this amazing God-given family dynamic happening here at Trinity lately on Sundays and Wednesdays and at many other times. Of course, we at Trinity and in the larger church are not exactly where we need to be yet. Obstacles stand in the way of the church's urgent mission to offer people a home. And all those obstacles stem, sadly, from selfishness in one form or another. We're kind of like that steward more than we would like to be. We Christians, unlike our Lord, are too prone to be stingy. We shy away from the fact that financial sacrifice is essential for us to achieve our crucial God-given mission. Mission takes money in this world. Um, uh, maybe unfortunately, but that is the way it is. And actually giving money can be life, a life-giving experience. And we also don't think of our time and talents as something first and foremost to be used for the advancement of God's kingdom. Let's face it, we think they're for the advancement of me <laughs> and a certain comfortable, uh, enjoyable life. Nothing wrong with those things, but th God gave us time and talents as well as money for his purposes, primarily. We are possessive about many things, including our ideas about the way things should be in the church. And I think I want to hold on to those ideas of mine even more than I want to hold on to my money. Many, including myself, are guilty of wanting to offer others a home with us in the church, but with the caveat that they must become just like us. We want to make carbon copies of ourselves. Uh, the people we ideally think about joining us must love the 1979 prayer book or even the 1928 prayer book. Uh, they must use our terminology. They must reflect our own standards of behavior. They must, in short, conform. Now, we do hope, of course, that people might be attracted to things that make us distinctive, but we shouldn't make idols out of those things. In, sometimes we care more about our ideas and standards and so on than about what's even more important, which is people, the church's mission. And so in that case, we act not like Jesus, but like the Pharisees who preferred their way 
to God's way. So we have some work to, to do. We have a ways to go. Our possessions of all sorts, money, ambitions, ideas about how things should be, can stand in the way of fulfilling our baptismal calling to draw people together in the name of Christ. As Jesus puts it bluntly in today's gospel, we cannot serve both God and possessions. Only by choosing God will we and many others find a true home, one that will last forever and bring us more joy than we can ask for or imagine.